This is Policy, Guns and Money, the Aspie podcast. Welcome to Policy, Guns and Money. My name is Kelly Smith. Today, I am delighted to bring you a special episode of the Aspie podcast. Late last year, Aspie's Head of International Program, Lisa Sharlin, sat down with Commander Jen Macklin, Group Captain Dee Gibbons, and Wing Commander Angeline Lewis of the Australian Defence Force. We're privileged to be able to bring you this discussion. Lisa introduces the conversation all the way from Tonga in the midst of more research for ASPE's international program. Late last year, I had an opportunity to sit down with some members of the Australian Defence Force who have served as gender advisors in operational roles overseas. This discussion was particularly timely, given that the international community is reflecting on the progress that has been made on women, peace and security over the last two decades since the adoption of the first Security Council resolution on women, peace and security. It's also timely in an Australian context as we await the release of Australia's second national action plan on women, peace and security. We look forward to sharing the conversation with you. And now we'll we'll go back to late November last year and hear from our gender advisors. I'm delighted to be here today uh, with several representatives of the Australian Defence Force uh, to have a conversation a little bit about the role of gender advisors in the work that Defence does. So I'm joined by Commander Jen Macklin, Group Captain Dee Gibbons and Wing Commander Angeline Lewis. Welcome, ladies. Hello, Lisa. Great to be here. So I thought we might start off the the podcast discussion today. Uh, I think it's quite timely that we're having a conversation about this. As as you're all aware, next year is the 20th anniversary of of Women, Peace and Security, the first time that the UN Security Council adopted a resolution on on the issue back all the way back in the year 2000. Uh, And it's also around the time that the Australian government's going to be launching its next national action plan on women, peace and security. So that's um, forthcoming very soon. And of course, defence has a very important role in the implementation of that. So before we get into a bit of a discussion about um, what gender advisors do and um, the role of integrating gender advice into defence operations, I thought I might start off by asking you all to tell us a little bit about who you are and what jobs you currently have in defence and I guess when you've previously served as a a gender advisor. So I might start with, with you, Jen. All right. Thanks, Lisa. Uh, well, I actually joined the ADF quite late. I joined when I was 39 and I had previously worked in Sydney uh, in the banking and finance sector, uh, but I had always wanted to join the Navy, uh, so I decided to to not leave uh, to not leave that stone unturned and to give it a go. Uh, so um, I, w- I had a sea change and moved to Canberra and went to ANU and did a master's in strategic affairs. And after a short stint in the Australian public service, I joined the permanent Navy in 2013. And at that time, it was when the Australian Human Rights Commission had released its report into the treatment of women. And so uh, I was asked to lead the Navy implementation of those recommendations, which was fantastic and, and a fascinating experience. Uh, and, and then subsequently, I became the Director of Diversity and Inclusion for Navy. And then last year, I deployed to Iraq as a gender advisor. Uh, and then now I am the Director of Gender, Peace and Security for Defence, and I'm responsible for implementing the National Action Plan across defence in collaboration with uh, defence stakeholders. So a bit of an alternative pathway into the space, but uh, loving the job. Absolutely. I look forward to, to delving a little bit into, I guess, both those roles, what you did in Iraq, but also what you're currently doing, because I think there's some some work there that's it's really interesting to have a further look at. Uh, Dee, um, you're in the Air Force. Tell us a little bit about how you came to, I guess, work in this space. 
thanks, Lisa. I've been working almost exclusively in the sort of gender diversity and inclusion space for about the last eight years. Um, so I had a fairly sort of traditional Air Force career. Um, and then in 2009, I actually um, asked Air Force if, I, if they would sponsor me to do a PhD, um, undertaking research into why um, Air Force had so few women in the occupational group of pilot. So I did a whole heap of research about barriers and challenges uh, for women in, in very non-traditional occupations, such as military pilot. At about the same time, um, we had the, the ADFA Skype scandal, um, which triggered a whole heap of action um, to really examine sort of more broadly barriers and challenges impacting women's careers in defence. So I worked really closely with Liz Broderick. Um, the Broderick Review became the project director, sort of liaison point for defence. And then subsequent to that, um, I went. At, I was posted in as the head of um, our Sexual Misconduct Prevention and Response Office, and it was during that time that I got the call uh, to be the Resolute Support Senior Gender Advisor um, working with NATO. And that just seemed for me a really natural extension of the, the work that I'd been doing, you know, in various roles in, in defence. Uh, so I deployed to Afghanistan uh, in August 2015 um, and did a nine-month tour, arguably the best thing that I've ever done and likely ever to do. Um, it was it was a phenomenal experience that, and one that I'm enormously proud of. On my return to Australia, I actually left the full-time defence force um, and I now work at University of Queensland on, on a full-time basis, but I've stayed really connected to the women, peace and security space. So Amanda Fielding and I um, developed the Operational Gender Advisor course, which we piloted um, in time for Talisman Sabre 17. I'm very, very proud of that course. And I also worked um, with defence to develop doctrine, um, you know, for the women, peace and security space in defence. And I'm still very much engaged in the women, peace and, and security space and probably will always be engaged in this space. Again, I look forward to talking a little bit about certainly what you were doing in Afghanistan, but I think that wider work as well. And I think as we, we go through this a little bit, it's it, I think it'll be interesting to discuss a bit more how the work of a gender advisor perhaps differs to some of the other work that's been underway in defence on some of these broader issues that sometimes get confused. Angeline, um, you've, I, I think, served as a gender advisor again in a different context as well, but but how did you come to this, this work? And, and you're also doing um, some interesting work for defence in women, peace and security as well. Oh, well, I hope so, Lisa. I suppose we'll see as time develops. Uh, my career path has been a little different to Jen and to Group Captain Given. So I've served for 17 years, first in the Navy, and then about five years ago, I jumped ship to the Royal Australian Air Force. But my role is as a legal officer, and I've been employed in that role throughout. Um, I've deployed five times. Um, I've had the good fortune to have participated in operations in the air, on land and at sea. One of those, the most recent one, was as a gender advisor, and that was as the force headquarters gender advisor for the UN mission in South Sudan. And I got back from that only in February this year. But in addition, I'm also fortunate enough to have the opportunity to be the inaugural minister's fellow for women, peace and security, which is an initiative of the former minister for defence, Maurice Payne, and the University of New South Wales in Canberra to create a better link between defence and the research community for WPS. Fantastic. So we have quite a bit of expertise here for this discussion. And I thought I might start with some of the harder questions first. There has been, I think, 
quite a few misconceptions we've seen in the public debate and media around what does the role of a gen- what is the role of a gender advisor when it comes to the work of the Australian Defence Force? What does that mean on operations? Does that detract from operational effectiveness and capability, which I think some have perhaps argued? And uh, so I'd be interested, I think, to to get an understanding um, from the experiences that you've had and the roles that you've had serving on operations uh, about what the role of a gender advisor in the military is. And I think if you have any stories to share on on some of that, it would be really uh, interesting to hear what that involves. So we might start with you, Jen. You've you've come out of Iraq where you were recently serving in a coalition operation as a gender advisor. What what did that involve? How would you describe that role to people? And I guess what what were some of the challenges that you faced? I would describe the role as fundamentally an influencer uh, and an advisor, obviously as a gender advisor. Uh, but a lot of the the role is finding a way to get traction within the mission for people to pay attention to gender issues uh, and apply a gender perspective in operations and planning. Uh, And interestingly, uh, when I joined uh, Operation OCRA, the gender advisors were in the CJ9, so the the civil military area of the mission, which is traditionally not highly rated uh, or often uh, seen as irrelevant. And so for me, the challenge was how to create relevance, how to get traction with the commanding general, because in most other missions, you're part of the the commander's group um, or commander's initiative group or a special advisor. So um, one of the opportunities that uh, I saw was that uh, there had been a a focus on protection issues in the mission. So uh, for women and children who are in IDP camps and some of the horrific uh, experiences they were having. Uh, But I also saw uh, towards the end of the campaign uh, against Daesh that the role of women had not really been examined sufficiently or or it hadn't really come to the fore in operational planning and and awareness across the mission. So I actually undertook a a gender profile, if you like, uh, of women in Daesh and I called that the weaponisation of women in Daesh, uh, which actually really got a lot of traction. So it got the attention of the command group uh, and the intelligence cell and it really started to um, raise that awareness of the need to not just focus on men or not just have that traditional view of men in Daesh. And so we really um, we looked at uh, not just their role um, in propaganda and recruitment, but their actual role in the conflict and how they were facilitating uh, operations going forward. And so from that, two things happened. Firstly, we were able to integrate that uh, that profiling, that awareness into our strategic comms, so how to develop a counter-narrative, uh, how to uh, develop that uh, further in our operational planning. And secondly, it got such attention in the command group that we went from being in the CJ9 to actually being part of the, um, the commander's uh, group or, or the um, part of the commander's uh, team, if you like, so sitting at his table uh, at the morning briefing. So having been on the periphery outside, kind of looking in via the teleconference, we were actually at that table and it became a subject uh, of uh, discussion pretty much on a daily basis. So so that's why I say it's an influencing role because uh, often you're not in a position automatically where you get the ear of the commander and you have to 
establish yourself, get credibility, prove your value to the mission. So that's that's probably one of the experience, most interesting experiences I had and, and worthwhile. So, But it took a long time to get there too. And I think that's part of the challenges. You asked about challenges. You know, my, my deployment was six months. So it was really towards the end that I started to get that traction and then you have to hand over. But you build, every gender advisor builds and the next person that comes in builds further and, and you go from there. So. It was quite a um, quite a different experience in Resolute Support because gender, NATO has been deploying gender advisors for many, many years. They've got senior gender advising cells in, you know, most of their kind of headquarters. Um, so I didn't have to spend and invest time advocating and creating sort of frameworks for the gender position. They were already there. Colonel Amanda Fielding was the first um, Australian gender advisor in the Resolute Support Headquarters in the senior role. Um, and she did a fantastic job of making sure that gender was at the table. So we were automatically included in big planning groups, sync meetings. Um, everybody knew that, you know, they had to consider the gender aspects when they were doing any sort of operational planning. So that was a that was a battle I didn't have to sort of win. Um, and so I was actually able to really focus my time on achieving the mission. Um, and in Afghanistan at the time, it was increasing women's Afghan women's representation in Afghan security forces, ensuring the women that worked in those um, those spaces had meaningful employment, you know, careers career progression, uh, the necessary training and equipment uh, to do their jobs, facilities, uh, and ensuring that they were safe. So it was a very clear mission and that made it very easy to sort of go in and assess what needed to be done to actually achieve that mission. Uh, in relation to, you know, your question, Lisa, about, you know, there's a there's a, a sense that sometimes this, this gender thing actually has a negative impact on operations or it's unnecessary. I think if you can't find an operational reason for doing something, then don't do it. So in every in every space that I've worked in, uh, there's a clear operational benefit to, to considering gender. Now in Afghanistan, uh, the whole women in Afghan security forces, you know, in parts of Afghanistan, um, women aren't permitted to talk to men outside their family. So if there's a crime or a sexual assault, they literally can't report that unless there are women police in, in the zone that they can actually talk to. So there's, there's, a, there's a very clear operational impact there. Uh, the Taliban had started dressing as women to go through checkpoints and, you know, to, to enter spaces. Um, they were unable to be searched if, if there was a perception that they were women because, you know, the men cannot search the women. So um, you actually need women to do this, you know, to fulfil these search capabilities. And there was another bigger piece. So in terms of, um, you know, trying to get enough people in the Afghan security sector, uh, having women fulfilling, you know, really important roles like fixing communications equipment, uh, being in hospitals, being doctors, being nurses, uh, you know, doing the logistical aspects of an operation, it actually meant that that enabled more higher numbers of men to actually go forward and, and fight the fight. So there was a there was a heap of operational um, imperative to to increase women's representation. And once we articulated that um, to the the Minister of Interior and the Minister of Defence in Afghanistan, the rest became very simple. They were like, "Oh, okay, yes, we see what we see what you're trying to achieve here. We're on board." And I think you you raise a very interesting point there, Dee, about. Um, uh, 
you know, those perhaps that, you know, the Taliban or other organisations or Daesh or others who've, who've, I guess in some ways when we start to look at uh, terrorism or certainly some of the literature and analysis and research that's taken place has found, you know, that some of these organisations are very effective at applying that gender gendered approach to the way that they recruit and the way that they engage. And and I guess this presents a real problem for perhaps organisations or governments who aren't factoring this into their, their thinking in terms of the way they respond, particularly in operations. Um, Angeline, you had the experience of uh, serving in a, a UN mission context as a gender advisor. Did you have similar experiences? I mean, the UN's been doing this for quite a while as well, or were they a little bit more different? Well, the UN certainly has, Lisa, but the challenge for the UN in all of its peacekeeping operations is not whether gender is important for all the reasons that Group Captain Gibbon has just gone through, but what the role of the military is. So each UN peacekeeping operation has a police component, a civilian component and a military component. What the UN is working through is what each of those components ought to be doing to deal with gender as part of a peacekeeping operation. And this is what makes the role of the gender advisor in each component really interesting because the risk, and this was my experience in South Sudan, is that you have a gender advisor, so as part of the military planning process, suddenly you become solely responsible for everything to do with women and children in the country. So you have one staff officer responsible for half the population while the rest of the headquarters does the rest. So the role of the gender advisor is not so much the gender input, but in assisting the entire staff process, each staff area, intelligence, logistics, operational planning, operational execution to do their job cognizant of the impact of gender on their particular roles. So it's really an advisory role. It's about critical thinking. 15 years from now, when we've mainstreamed gender, we may not need a specialist gender advisor, but at the moment, the role is to facilitate the planning process rather than to do gender for the operation. So in Resolute Support, um, that one of the things that we did was actually establish uh, gender focal points in each of the sort of headquarters staff operations. So we actually had someone in the legal team that had a gender perspective and was looking at what they were doing from a gendered perspective. We had someone in the planning team. We had someone in the, you know, the personnel and administration team. So I think that made the job of the gender advisor uh, much more strategic because you actually had the people embedded in those headquarters functions, uh, you know, doing doing the work of applying a gender perspective to the to, you know, what they were doing at the time. And that brings me, I guess, to a really interesting point about you mentioned, um, Angeline, there, this, this concept of gender mainstreaming, whether we're going to get to that point. And, and Dee, you've referred to the gender focal points as another mechanism that are used. And so I, I guess I might, might throw to you, Jen, in terms of what defence is doing more broadly. Of course, we've had reference to the gender advisor course that defence runs. Um, what's, what's the approach that defence is taking as an organisation to, I guess, um, the longer term gender the mainstreaming, ensuring that this is integrated into operations is it through um, the training up of more gender advisors so that they can serve on operations and is it just operations that they're serving on or are they serving in other roles across the organisation? So under the program mandate, uh, Defence is articulating what its unique contribution will be to the next National Action Plan, but it is a continuation of our previous efforts along six lines of effort. Uh, firstly, doctrine, so integrating gender perspective into all of our military doctrine. 
training, which Dee has mentioned. So world-class training now uh, and not just about training but building capacity right across the organisation, not just to deploy gender advisors but for them to be able to uh, act as gender focal points or just uh, involved in exercises, you know, really, as I say, building that capacity to spread that message. Uh, personnel. So we've got uh, 10 uh, dedicated positions in defence at the moment, which is quite unique in militaries across the world. But not just uh, those dedicated positions, but again, how do we build that capacity across defence? Mission effectiveness, so deployed gender advisors, making sure that we have sufficiently trained people to deploy and once they get there, they know what they're doing and can add value. International engagement. So this is a really interesting piece for us with the Pacific Step Up. Um, how we engage with our Indo-Pacific partners and build capacity in the region. Uh, so that's a really exciting space for us and that's one that we'll really look to step up in the next um, National Action Plan. And finally, governance and reporting. And this is, a, again, a, a challenging space for us under the new NAP because uh, measure, measuring effectiveness, monitoring uh, our effectiveness in this area is going to be really challenging. I think in, under the last NAP, uh, we had... Uh, 17 of the 24 actions and and it was in a way it was easy to kind of see where our what we had done and what our achievements were but under the new nap with the outcomes over a decade we have to really I think be a little bit more sophisticated with how we approach this challenge so so they're the things that we'll be focusing on and and that's that's the profile if you like of uh, gender peace and security and defense yeah so big challenges ahead yeah. And from a, from an operational perspective, um, I think Jen would agree we're getting better and better at doing the gender analysis piece. Um, you know, so in Joint Operational Command, every time we are involved with an operation, either either as leading the operation, you know, as we did sort of with Fiji Assist after Cyclone Winston, or operations that we're involved with. We always now undertake a gender analysis as part of the sort of planning um for the execution phase of the operation. And that gives us insights into the whole population rather than just sort of focusing on some of the population. Um, our intelligence people would say that they've always done that. Uh, but what I've found is unless you actually are advocating and you, you have somebody that's specifically looking at the population in terms of men and women, boys and girls, age, uh, in all of the factors that make up a population, it, some things can get missed. And I, I think that's a, a really important point, I guess, that that ties in with um, one of the broader points that you made, Jen, about how do we measure the effectiveness of this? And I know certainly from a research perspective and engaging in this work, it remains an, an ongoing equest, sort of question. Uh, and I think, I guess, one of the the examples of, of drawing that out is, is it's rather anecdotal at the moment. Some of the examples that we have of where it has affected change. And, and as you say, Dee, I think, you know, if, if we haven't been asking the question in the past, what are the differences of asking those questions now? And what are we finding are the results of that? Uh, if you're in a situation uh, where you're looking at conflict prevention, you may not actually know the answer because it's much harder to see that you prevented something. But in an operation, perhaps, or a deployment, you might actually see some changes that you're making. Um, so, Angeline, I might ask you, in in your time when you were in South Sudan um, serving as a military gender advisor, is there an example of, I can imagine in that context and, and having done research of UN peacekeeping missions and spoken to people, uh, not everyone's on board with um, a lot of this type of work. 
Uh, you do have at the moment quite considerable pushback in UN headquarters when it comes to budgeting for these types of roles, not necessarily the military ones, but the ones across the mission and the civilian component. So did you face some of that sort of pushback? And are there examples of your time serving in UNMISS where you could point to actually being there and, and being able to influence made a difference to the work that the mission was doing? It's certainly a real challenge. The UN and all of its personnel from top to bottom, I think it's fair to say are committed to the concept of WPS and gender equality. Throughout my time in UNMISS, I rarely heard a word against the concept. Um, gender equality is a good that I think much of the world agrees with. The challenge, though, is sitting in an operational planning group with the military component or with counterparts from the civilian component or from the, mil uh, the UN police component talking about what we'll actually do in response to a situation. So one of the challenges for UNMISS during my tour was a series of reports that we received from MSF about mass rape in Northern Unity State during September to December of 2018. The challenge for UNMISS, is we received the reports afterwards, what does the military do? What do the police do? What does the civilian component do without overlapping and with adequate sharing of information between us to achieve a consolidated and a coherent outcome? And that was a real challenge, something that there was no lack of commitment or interest in doing, but just a general developing sense of creativity for what should we do. So for the military component, what we realised was that our main contribution was security patrols. That's what we do as a military force. And we had an engineering company. So once we identified that one of the risks was damage to the roads um, and overgrowth of foliage next to them, that was something that the military engineering company could deal with. Um, but investigation um, and enforcement of criminal law with respect to CRS, GBV, that wasn't something that the military was best placed to do. So our challenge wasn't agreeing that WPS is important or agreeing that CRS, GBV should be combated, but what should we actually do? And given our limited capacity and resources, how should we prioritise that amongst very large and dispersed populations? So our challenges were practical rather than conceptual. And I think you, you make a very important point there on the issue of, of gender equality being a, a concept that, you know, a, a large proportion of people are on board with. Uh, but then it becomes a different question when you look at priorities and putting uh, resources towards something and financing those types of things. And I, I guess that's where some of the inherent challenges with some of this work perhaps still remain a little bit. Dee, in terms of your time in Af Afghanistan, um, I mean, you mentioned that NATO is, has been doing this for quite a while. Um, I mean, we had Claire Hutchinson out here in Australia, the NATO um, Secretary General Special Representative in February, talking about the work that NATO was doing and some of the work they're actually doing right now to focus on emerging security challenges. Um, but I guess from your time in Afghanistan, was there anything that you observed from your engagement with NATO perhaps that um, was useful in terms of the way that Australia is approaching its its work on gender advices or not so much not so much engagement with NATO yep. but one of the things that was set up um, so obviously similar very similar situation to what Angeline's just described when you're working in an area of operation you've got it's a busy busy space all right so there are people doing gender advocacy you've got civil society there you've got the UN there you've got 
Afghan, you know, women who are in leadership positions. You've got, it's a really busy space. One of the wonderful models um, that I think has come out of the Af- Afghanistan space is a forum, creating a forum where you can get a, a range of different stakeholders, often with competing ideologies, to sit in the one space and you develop a plan of who's doing what and when in terms of the agreed priorities. So in Afghanistan, it's called the Women's Security Advisory Council. Representatives, so the Minister of Interior, Minister of Defence, uh, the First Lady, Mrs Rulagani, the Commander of Resolute Support, Four Star General, Gender Advisors, uh, Diplomatic, did I mention Diplomatic Community? You've got the Diplomatic Community there. You've got people with money there. Um, you've got UPOL, you know, the, the sort of policing arm there. You've got a bunch of people that are all looking at women, peace and security from their varied perspectives and creating a space where you can come together. You won't always agree, but you can work out who's doing what, what are your priorities, talking about the implications of certain actions and, and how that will impact other parts of the big, you know, WPS puzzle. Um, I think something like that is incredibly valuable and incredibly important. And I think um, that there's been efforts to really kind of replicate that model in other missions, um, other spaces where we're working. Which I think is a very, as you say, an, an important point because a lot of these missions are not occurring in, in isolation. It's not the military component carrying out work in isolation from civilian or police actors who are engaged and it requires a very comprehensive response when it comes to addressing these issues. I mean, certainly in Afghanistan, we've we've had the discussions over the last few months about women's participation in the political negotiations and things like that has been incredibly contested. And I guess that brings me to, to sort of a, another point around the fact that there are some elements of pushback against this agenda around the globe at the moment at the political level. Uh, we see that play out in a UN context. Uh, we see that play out sometimes in, in domestic debates around um, some priorities on these issues as well. So I guess in, in that environment, um, as we look forward, and I guess I'd really like to see the 20th anniversary of Women, Peace and Security as an opportunity to look forward at, at what we try to do to, to really, um, I think, consolidate the work that's been done over the last two decades. What do you think are some of the challenges in this space moving forward, either for defence as an organisation or more broadly given the, the expertise that you have? You know, Lisa, one of the things that I think attracts criticism for WPS as a theory is when people take it, instead of an overall theory of women, peace and security, I think critics tend to focus on the women aspect, that this is a feminist agenda and that there's something inherently wrong with that, that it's not relevant to armed conflict or it's somehow inconsistent or exists in a different space from high-end international relations, engagement, war, politics. But I think that misunderstands what WPS is. The reason that it comes within the purview of the Security Council is that it's a theory of peace and security. So it's the involvement of women in peace building, um, in conflict avoidance, in post-conflict reconstruction as a contribution to peace and security. And taking it that way, I think it undermines a lot of the critique because to do so is to say that peace and security is not relevant to international relations or to the future of the global community, and I, I think that's that's a given. It must be a given. To understand the future of WPS, we need to understand where it comes from and what it's focused on, and even to understand that from an institutional and structural perspective, WPS doesn't answer feminist critiques. It's 
It's bringing women into existing structures. So the idea that it's a feminist agenda is not even correct. It's a, it's a theory of peace and security. And I think that's supported, Lisa, by a lot of recent research that's established a clear and robust correlation between the participation of women in peace agreements and in the institutions of states and the durability of those peace agreements. This is not participation for its own sake or protection because women are inherently vulnerable and need protecting. Um, but in order to create a durable, persistent and effective peace agreement, you must have the participation of women. This is what WPS is about. And, and I think you're, you're quite right there, Angeline, in terms of, you know, we, we know there's research that, you know, more gender equal societies are less likely to, to lapse into conflict and various other things. So it does come down to the durability of a, um, sort of a conflict prevention and, you know, finding a political peace and all these types of things at the end of the day. So if you're, if you're not on board with necessarily the women, peace and security aspects, well, then there is reason to be on board if you want to find a resolution to a conflict at the end of the day. And building on what Angeline's just articulated, that's why I think it's so important that we keep equal emphasis on the three Ps, so protection, prevention and participation, and not just focus on one or the other. Um, and there's been a bit of a global shift and we've seen gender advisors actually be renamed women protection advisors. That, that means that we're, fo we're situating women as in need of protection. We're not situating women as leaders uh, and important parts of society in, in places like judiciary, political. Uh, you know, it's incredibly important that women have a voice at the table. Um, and if we situate women as vulnerable and in needing of protection and not acknowledge the importance of their participation, then we're really not going to have long-term sustainable success in this space. And just as a, a, an addition to that in a nuanced way, when I arrived in Iraq, my role as a gender advisor had been renamed Gender and Protection. And that actually framed the thinking and the conversation in the mission around women. So that's why I did that gender profile, because I was trying to refocus the mission uh, to an area that they had overlooked. And of course, my experience was quite different because it was high-end conflict, but that was really important um, for the mission to understand and to build into their planning. So, you know, even though it, it doesn't sound like much, the language is really important. Absolutely. And I think um, just on that point, something we haven't really touched upon, and I think sometimes this is is perhaps another misconception, is that gender advisors necessarily have to be women. And I'd be interested in your thoughts on that because I know there's some evolving thinking about this. And I think it goes to the point that this is not just a women's protection issue that we're talking about. It's not just a women's issue that we're talking about. It really is the fact that you're, you know, it tends to be focused on women because traditionally they've been overlooked in some of these discussions or as the focus of some of this planning and, and operations. But I'd be interested in your thoughts about that discussion um, because I think it's, it's quite an important one. I think if you have a view that balanced teams are better teams, then that informs the construct of your gender capability. Uh, in Afghanistan, we had men and women working in the gender space. And so sometimes I had access um, in ways that the men didn't, but sometimes they had access and credibility in the, in ways that I, I didn't. And so if you've got, if you've got men and women working in this space, you're really maximizing the capability in the gender space. I think that's certainly true. And 
while the UN, I think, is still working towards increasing the number of male gender advisors, um, but also working to increase the broader representation of gender advisors. So it's not just European women or women from Western nations, but women from all participating nations and men from all participating nations, because what we're really chasing in a gender advisor is a critical perspective, and that comes from the right person not from necessarily a male or necessarily a female, but from a mix, from a balanced team. So any concluding thoughts at this stage before we, I guess, wrap up our discussion today? I know I could keep asking questions um, and I've had the benefit of engaging with a a number of gender advisors in the past. Uh, But is there anything, I guess, that having served in those roles, you would perhaps uh, want to to raise or, or conclude on? I don't think we can underestimate the importance of a gender advisor at this still relatively early stage of WPS implementation. It's the 20th anniversary next year, but in terms of the history of armed conflict and the practice of armed conflict, it's not very much. We're still working through this. We need a specialist input. Everyone, as we've discussed during this session, has agreed on the importance of WPS. But to translate that into effective operational practice on a day-to-day basis is a work in progress, and that's where you need the gender advisor. I think doing a robust gender analysis and making sure that you're doing your planning based on informed data rather than assumptions is really important. A really good example, um, in Afghanistan, there was a perception that Afghan women would not want to join the army because of the requirement to actually move, deploy to other other parts of Afghanistan. There was a sense that women wanted to stay in their in their families, near their families, which is why they were had higher representation in the police rather than the army. I was like, well, what are we basing this assumption on? Has anyone actually spoken to Afghan women about why they don't want to join the army? And they were like, mm, not really. Um, so I made sure we actually included that question in the pulse surveys that they were doing they did research quarterly of the Afghan population around a whole range of different issues to get a sense of you know how the country was feeling about certain things. So we actually included some specific questions about if you had an opportunity, would you want to join the army? Would you allow your daughters to join the army? If, if yes, what would we need to do? Uh, to, what would we need to change to make that a, an acceptable option for you? And what we found out was that uh, people were very positive towards women joining the army. The women were really keen to join the army and deploy away from, <laughs> you know, where they were at the time. But there was some nuances with how we were training the women and there was a perception that the women would be integrated with the men in this in the training institutions just simply because of the layout of that institution. So what we realised was if we actually enabled and advocated the fact that the training, army training, would be done separately um, away from the men, that the women would be accommodated in away from the men, uh, that actually completely changed our ability to encourage higher numbers of women into the Afghan army. It's just as simple as, simple as that. Uh, women were keen to join the army. Their families were keen to let them. Um, of course, you have to have permission from a male if you're wanting to join the army or the police force in Afghanistan, but work with what you've got. Uh, and the numbers of um, women in the Afghan army have grown exponentially since we just, you know, made some accommodations and adjustments to the recruiting approach and training approach. 
And I guess there's some wider lessons there in terms of barriers to women's participation in defence forces at large, whether there's an understanding as to why they aren't joining and, and what are some of the barriers to them actually deciding to join. Let me wrap up our discussion this morning by saying thanks to you all. Uh, thanks, Jen, Dee, Angeline, for taking part in uh, our discussion this morning. I think it highlights how important it is that we hear directly from people who are serving on operations, undertaking these roles about some of the, the, the challenges and the lessons that are coming out of these experiences and how they inform the wider work that we're doing to try and, and progress not only women, peace and security, but the work that uh, Defence and, and many different organisations are doing in terms of overall peace and security uh, across the globe. So thank you again. Uh, and we look forward to hearing more about the work that you're doing in the future. Thanks, Thanks Lisa. Lisa. That's all for this episode. As always, we are keen to hear from you. You can leave comments on iTunes or tweet us at aspie underscore org. We'll be back with our regular programming next week.